1: You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. This hour, two guests crucial to both the present and the future of Ukraine. We'll hear from the CEO of the firm that owns the azov steel plant in Mariupol, currently surrounded by Russian forces, and the head of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the EBRD, the organization built to help post-Soviet states fight for democracy. For now, Mariupol on the brink of falling into Russian hands. The last remaining soldiers and hundreds of civilians are making a defiant stand in the azov steel plant in the southeast of the city. The Kremlin says it can seize control of the plant in three to four days, though Vladimir Putin today says storming the area is no longer necessary, having blocked all means of escape. Russia's president says he's offering a, quote, dignified treatment to anyone who surrenders. He's calling the Kremlin's effort to capture Mariupol a success. Yet overnight, Russian forces continue to bombard the battered city. Earlier Thursday, four evacuation buses were able to leave through a humanitarian corridor. And in a warning to the West, Russia has tested a new nuclear-capable intercontinental ballistic missile, sometimes referred to as Satan-2, Putin said it should make Russia's enemies, quote, think twice and give them food for thought. Meanwhile, in Kyiv, the prime ministers of Spain and Denmark have arrived for meetings with President Zelensky. Pedro Sanchez and Meta Fredrickson appeared together and promised to deliver concrete support to Ukraine. And Matt Rivers is in Lviv and has the latest.
2: Well, Julia, the horrific situation in Mariupol continues as we learn that a planned evacuation corridor that was set up yesterday uh, did not work as planned. Let's start with the latest headlines, though, uh, from President Zelensky, who says uh, that Ukraine at the moment does not have the amount of heavy weaponry that it would need to take back the city of Mariupol. Uh, A nod, I think, to the fact That Ukraine continues to ask for more weapons, heavy weapons from the West, especially as they would face uh, or they do face an ongoing assault by Russia in the Donbass region. The idea that they have enough weapons to go around, not only to fight that front, but also to liberate Mariupol uh, in some sort of counteroffensive. Zelensky basically saying he doesn't have that ability. Vladimir Putin uh, on Thursday basically claiming victory in Mariupol, even though there continues to be Ukrainian resistance centered on the Azovstal steel plant complex, where we know fighters on the Ukraine side remain, Putin basically acknowledged that and said that Russia does not need to go in there and clear out every single one of those soldiers. He said that they should just seal it off and uh, congratulated his military for a victory in Mariupol, as he called it. Of course, the Ukrainian side denies that the city of Mariupol has fallen, claiming there still is Ukrainian resistance there. This is some 120,000 civilians, according to Zelensky, in and around Mariupol still need to be evacuated. And there was hope, Julia, that on uh, that on Wednesday, a humanitarian corridor that had been agreed to between both sides could facilitate the evacuation of several thousand, at least, civilians from Mariupol. But unfortunately, that did not happen, with uh, Ukrainian officials saying only four, four buses carrying civilians managed to make it out of that city. The Ukrainians blaming the Russian side, uh, saying that uh, they, they were disorganized and that they actually broke a ceasefire that did not allow for the safe evacuation of those citizens, something that we have seen or at least heard the Russians be accused of multiple times throughout this war. Uh, So this dire, dire situation in the city of Mariupol continues as so many citizens, so many ordinary people still need to be evacuated. Julia.
1: Matt Rivers there. Now, as the battle in the east for the Donbass region continues, Ukrainians who survived Russia's brutal attack on their homes are trying to work out what next, while fearing life will never be the same. CNN's For Black has been hearing their stories.
3: Andrei Binchenko says his life will be forever split in two, before and after the day the Russians came. He remembers the skies over his home in Hostomel near Kiev, suddenly swarming with dozens of attack helicopters. He says they flew in a low formation, like they were on parade. And soon after, he says, Russian ground forces approached his home. This is where, he says, they opened fire from a distance. An explosive round landed close by, fracturing his leg, shrapnel piercing much of his body. But Andre says he was lucky. He got to hospital before the Russians worked out, he used to fight pro-Moscow separatists in eastern Ukraine. He says many veterans from the east were deliberately killed during the occupation. If I had not been wounded, I would have been shot too, he says. (laughs) Vasily Hilko also survived Russia's occupation, but at great cost. Vasily was shocked by the Russian numbers and firepower that rolled into Bogdanivka, a tiny village northeast of the capital. <laughs> so many tanks passed, he said, so much ammunition. Every house had 20 soldiers occupying it, including the house where he, his neighbors, and family were sheltering. They stayed in the basement, the Russians moved in above. One night, Vasily says, four drunk soldiers pushed open the basement door and screamed, everyone out by the count of ten or all will be killed. Vasily says women were screaming, children crying, and as he was the last one through the door, he was blasted from behind with a
4: shotgun.
3: He says nothing was left of the leg, all bones destroyed, just a puddle of blood in minutes. He says two days later some Russian soldiers helped him get to hospital. He still thinks they're beasts, not people. The Russian invasion of areas around Kiev violently interrupted and ended many people's lives. And some would somehow survive brutal, intimate encounters, leaving them forever changed. Phil Black, CNN, Bogdanivka, Ukraine.
1: And later this hour, President Biden is expected to provide an update on the war in Ukraine from the White House. And we will bring that to you live the moment it happens. For now, in Washington, several finance ministers, including U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, walked out of a G20 meeting yesterday in protest when Russia's finance minister began to speak. Economic officials from around the world are joining World Bank and IMF meetings to discuss how to contain the fallout from the war. And Richard Quest is there for us. That was the isolationist scene setter, I think, Richard, going into these meetings. And obviously, Ukraine is going to dominate the agenda, but also the spillover effects. And for some of these policymakers, how do you now set policy in a world of materially slowing growth and ongoing rising prices? And that's the challenge, too.
5: It is, and it is the most difficult challenge they faced, arguably more difficult in a sense than pandemic or global financial crisis, because in those situations they had firepower and they knew what needed to be done. Now you have slowing growth, you have very high inflation, highest for 40-odd years, And you have a war, a war that's pushing up commodity prices. So, um, Julia, whether you talk about the OECD, the developed economies, whether you talk about the the developing emerging economies or the HIPAA, highly indebted countries, they are all facing extraordinary difficulties. And the IMF and World Bank don't really have any major solutions other than keep doing what you're doing and try not to do any harm to anybody else. But the war in Ukraine has really made it much more difficult. Good example, as you said yesterday, the Russian finance minister started to speak, he was speaking virtually from Moscow, and Janet Yellen and the others all walked out. And the reason, very simple. They said they were not prepared to sit and listen to Russia speak and hold the agenda whilst they were prosecuting this war. There'll be more of that over the next couple of days. The IMFC, the various other bodies, the IMF and World Bank meetings are very difficult this year. You could ask a question about why
1: the Russians were even present and allowed to... uh... Participates in that G20 well, meeting, but that's, that's a separate question, which I know will take us on a completely separate tangent, um, not to mention some of the other problems, the fact that whole sways the world still struggling with the pandemic, the challenge of climate change and all the things that are having a broader impact on the world that, that also need to be discussed at this moment. Richard, you are going to be discussing many of these things. Tell us who's coming up and why we should tune in to Quest Means Business later.
5: Yes, they call they are the spring meetings of the IMF and World Bank. And on Crestwind's business tonight, you'll have the president of the World Bank and the managing director of the IMF, the two top people, to discuss the situation. But what I'm going to try to get out of them tonight is what needs to be done, rather than just a restating of how awful the position is. And on that question of the G20, I think most of them would love to kick Russia out. But there has to be unanimity, or at least general agreement, and China will never agree, has already said so, to Russia being excluded from the G20. So Lord knows what will happen when there's the leaders meeting in Bali and in Indonesia later this year. Yeah, and
1: I like your point. Let's talk about action and the response as opposed to debating the problems that that we know are out there. Yeah. Can't wait for that. I'm looking forward to it. Richard Quest, thank you. Thank you. Now, lockdown nightmare in Shanghai. This new social media video shows an elderly woman who appears to be arguing with a covid worker who's trying to send her back to the quarantine center. The seemingly endless covid lockdown leading to rare protests in the city of more than 25 million people. David Culver has the latest.
4: Shanghai residents pushing back after nearly 3 weeks of lockdown. These videos circulating on social media show people confronting police for being forced from their homes. These are not folks with COVID-19, but rather people whose apartments are being turned into government quarantine facilities to cope with the surging COVID cases. The rising tensions come as Chinese officials vow to send every positive case of COVID-19 and any close contact to government quarantine, no matter the age. Here you see an elderly man shuffling towards a group of other senior citizens, some in their 90s, most in wheelchairs, transferred from their nursing home to this isolation facility after testing positive. Video shared from inside another center shows elderly patients seemingly left unattended. Cots set up in the halls with wooden boards and thin sheets as bedding. Since the start of this outbreak in early March, more than 400,000 cases have been reported in the city, according to China's National Health Commission. And most in this metropolis of more than 25 million people are still in strict lockdown. CNN's been living through it. We've mostly been sealed inside our homes, let out only for mandatory COVID tests and the occasional government distribution of groceries. Last week, we had a brief taste of freedom. I could step out of my apartment and walk all the way to the compound gate, still double locked. But since a reversal for our community, new restrictions have us sealed back inside our properties. The draconian and inconsistent policies, coupled with a constant uncertainty, weigh heavily. People tired, pushing back, physically, and through words. These banners appeared on the streets of Shanghai in the cover of night, This one calling residents to resist the limitless lockdown. This one reading, people are dying. Referring to the dire struggle to secure food and medical care. Online, a flood of frustration surfacing on China's heavily controlled internet. On Chinese social media platform Weibo, users began quoting the first sentence of China's national anthem. It reads, rise those who don't want to be enslaved. A rally call no longer aimed at foreign oppressors, but rather Beijing's pandemic response and its harsh restrictions. That line now censored. Some residents even boldly calling out Chinese officials for a perceived hypocrisy. This person wearing the photo of one of China's foreign ministry spokespersons who repeatedly accused Western government's COVID response of harming people's well-being. The sarcastic critique shared repeatedly online. The backlash likely to worsen as the weeks-long lockdown drags on, further damaging China's economic engine. Implementing the strategy in an excessive manner by itself could lead to exactly what the zero-COVID strategy wants to avoid. The growing dissent calls into question China's zero-COVID strategy at a critical time. Later this year, President Xi Jinping is expected to assume an almost unprecedented third term, Saving the way for him to rule for life, but the highly anticipated coronation now marred by discontent over a policy so closely tied to the people's leader. There's a lot of skepticism and doubt over the official numbers when it comes to the case count and deaths, as there was in Wuhan. And similar to when we covered the initial outbreak more than two years ago, we rely heavily on anecdotal evidence. And for several weeks now, People have been sharing news on social media of loved ones dying from COVID right here in Shanghai. And yet for several weeks, the government kept the death count at zero. Now they've started to adjust those numbers. And that points to the delicate balance that Chinese officials are trying to strike. They want to show on one side their heavy measures are effective. But at the same time, they need to demonstrate the virus is still serious and deadly. Otherwise, you'd have millions here asking, if it's not that serious, why this harsh lockdown? David Culver, CNN, Shanghai.
1: Important questions, as always. Now straight ahead. The battle for Ukraine has lasted more than two months. Reconstruction will take years. We'll hear from an international financial institution doing all it can to provide support now and in the future. That's next. Welcome back. Scenes like these of utter destruction in Mariupol are a stark reminder of the massive aid Ukrainians will need to rebuild when and if Russian troops ultimately withdraw from their country. The future of Ukraine and the financial support it will need going forward are key topics of discussion at the World Bank and IMF meetings in Washington, D.C. this week. Delegates hearing today that the country might need some $5 billion a month just to keep the economy afloat. The European Bank for Reconstruction and Development is already offering Kyiv a relatively modest but also crucial $2 billion lifeline. It's a unique financial institution overseen by more than 70 countries whose goal is to promote economic growth, free markets and the spread of democracy in Central and Eastern Europe. Since its founding, it's invested over $150 billion on thousands of projects in the region, including reconstruction efforts in the area surrounding Ukraine's Chernobyl nuclear plant. The EBRD froze all assistance to Russia back in 2014 after its seizure of Crimea. Odile Renobasu is the bank's president and is joining us now from Washington, D.C. Odile, great to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is the EBRD is the only multilateral investment organisation that that has a mandate to use its investments to support democracy. In light of what we're seeing in Ukraine today, what does that mean to you for, for the bank's purpose?
6: Indeed, the EBRD has, in its statute, uh, the objective to support countries that adhere to principle of democracy, multipartism, and so forth. And um, this has been a guiding principle in the activity of the bank. And um, that's why also, in line of consistently with this mandate, we are very actively supporting Ukraine at the current juncture. And... um, in a symmetric manner we have as you mentioned uh, suspended all our financing access to our resources to russia and belarus uh, in the context of the aggression uh, on ukraine
1: let's talk about the the money that you've allocated because you're calling it the resilience and livelihoods package it's it's two billion euros worth it it sounds like a lot of money and i know you're also providing fast-track financing how quickly Can you allocate that money and get that money out and what kind of projects are you looking for?
6: So what we are targeting is support to the economy, not support Mm -hmm. to the government, um, the budget of the government, but really the economy, which means the private sector, financing the trade, exchanges, import, export, financing the key infrastructure, such as electricity network, railway network, gas access to gas and we already have a long large pipeline of project with clients we knew because we've been working in ukraine for in the last um, 30 years we are very important investors we have been every year very important investors investing uh, around 1 billion per year in the last three years, for example. So we have a lot of clients and we are in contact with them about to address their needs. For example, we had some project for investment in infrastructure, which we are repurposing now to provide liquidity, working capital in a context where this public infrastructure, for example, cannot get payment or have difficulties to get payment from their clients. So okay. our key focus is really supporting the key of keeping the economy afloat and the key function of the economy uh, working. And I mean it it takes a bit of time to uh, implement the project and um, to disburse them, but we have, as I was saying, an important pipeline and really working very hard to react as quickly as possible to address the needs. Of course, the situation is also evolving on the ground. But um, but I think that we are doing everything we can to um, be effective in supporting our clients.
1: I mean, I believe you have just shy of $5 billion portfolio in Ukraine now. and as you mentioned, some of this money is being reallocated for liquidity support, loan deferrals, debt forgiveness, uh, trade finance as well. I just wonder if you have any sense at this stage, and I appreciate it's very difficult, how much of that that portfolio is in distress and and how many of these people are coming to you and saying, look, either we need cash immediately and we need liquidity support or we're not repaying any of those debts anytime soon.
6: We are seeing, indeed, clients in distress, and, and we are uh, restructuring uh, the debt with the private sector we have. Up to now, the level of default is, is relatively limited because, uh, you know, you have some delay for payment, but we expect uh, to have quite a high uh, degree of, of, uh, of losses and of okay. clients unable to pay, so we will give forbearance um, as much as we can there also, in, in particular for the private sector.
1: I appreciate at the moment, it's uh, for many people, it's about getting to safety and it's survival. It's not worrying so much about repaying debts and things. But to your point, I know small and medium-sized enterprises is a crucial part of the support you present as well. Um, Are you doing any assessment at this stage of infrastructure projects for rebuilding, because as we were discussing earlier this week on the show, people are trying to go back, particularly to some of the Western cities. And there are and will be need very quickly for, for rebuilding and for infrastructure projects to begin. Are you beginning work on that too?
6: Yes, we have some team on the ground that working right. on um, First, emergency support, humanitarian support and so forth, but also assessing uh, the need for reconstruction. I've seen the figures, I mean, there are a number of figures that are circulating around, I mean, from 50 billion, um, this, I mean, um, need for rec- in short term reconstruction uh, from the World Bank. Uh, some figures are going much higher. It's, it's of course, very difficult to analyze and it depends very much on, on the focus and of course, evolution uh, of the situation on the ground, but it's clear that there will be. I mean, there are some key infrastructures which need uh, need a new investment. Some of them have been destroyed. There is a lot also of, of investment needed in the housing. So I would say, from what I've seen, um, it's probably more than half of the 50 billion. Assess, needs assessed as of today, that would be uh, in infrastructure, and the other part is more housing, buildings, and so forth. So we see, for example, we've been working a lot on Chernobyl, for example, and uh, invested a lot to put to put the safety uh, framework in place. And um, in Chernobyl, and there we can already assess that there will be need for further investment uh, in equipment and so forth because of uh, the deterioration of the situation.
1: There are those that look at, at potential future projects as well and say, also under your mandate is energy security. And to your point, and you mentioned nuclear power plants, helping with the financing, perhaps, of smaller, safe nuclear power plants, non-Russian oil and gas projects, even minerals. Obviously, Russia is not going to be supplying minerals and, and investment in both Ukraine and surrounding countries to that effect, particularly as we transition away from carbon, could be great investments for the EBRD to focus on. Is that part of the game plan for this region going forward? Because I think in terms of energy security, this would be vital.
6: Clearly, there will be a need for very important investment in energy security and diversification of um, source of energy. Nuclear is likely to be part of the plan for a number of countries in the region, including Ukraine. We are not financing new nuclear plants. What we've been investing in and financing substantially is more the safety dimension. That's why we worked on Chernobyl, but uh, what we are supporting uh, very substantially with financing and with advisory activities is the development of renewable and the adjustment of the electricity network, the grid, for example, in order to be able to support a high level of renewable. And that will be very important in the agenda of reconstruction in Ukraine, but that's also a very important agenda in the neighboring countries. Some of them are very dependent on coal today mm. and they need to get out of coal and to develop alternative source of energy and renewable and energy efficiency is also, it's also a very important area for investment for us.
1: Yeah, you your team are going f- to be incredibly busy, I know, in the coming months and years. Um, you mentioned and repeated, actually, that all investments, activities in Russia were frozen in 2014. After the invasion of Crimea, in light of what we've seen in Ukraine, is it time to divest of interests in Russia? Is that being discussed?
6: I, we already di- we started divesting uh, in 2014. So we had at that point of time a portfolio of 10 billion in uh, Russia, and now it's much, much more, much over 10 times smaller. Uh, and indeed, the strategy is to diverse. Um, but we, and we are managing that project by project because what we have now in Russia is only equity investment and identified um, buyers and, and so forth. But, uh, but the, load, the direction is very clear and it's to diversity.
1: So it's going to go down to zero as quickly as possible.
6: Exactly. Mm.
1: Odile, oh, thank you for your time today. I know uh, you and your team are incredibly busy and we will let you get back to work. Odile Basso, they're the president of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Great to talk to you. Thank right you. Right after welcome. the break. Thank you. After the break, I speak to the CEO of Metinvest, the company that owns the Azovstal steel plant, as President Putin gives an order to blockade it. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back. Ukrainian fighters and civilians have been hunkered down in the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol. As we reported earlier, President Putin says there is no need for his troops to storm the plant, but he's ordered a blockade so that, in his words, a fly could not get through. The plant's owners, Metinvest, which is facilities throughout Ukraine, once had around 40,000 employees in Mariupol. 4,300 of its workers at the Azovstal plant have escaped. Metinvest accounted for 45% of Ukraine's crude steel output last year. Now it's focused on getting aid and equipment to Ukrainian troops on the front lines. Yuri Ryginkov joins us now. He's the CEO of Metinvest Holding. Yuri, great to have you on the show. First and foremost, I'm sorry for what you and, and your workers and your family are going through. What can you tell us about the workers, the civilians that remain in this plant that's now surrounded by Russian troops.
7: Well, uh, hello. First, uh, when uh, when the war started, we have stocked quite uh, quite a good uh, stocks of, of food and, and water in the bomb shelters and the facilities at, at the plants. So for some period of time, the civilians, they were able to use it and and uh, basically survive on that. Unfortunately, uh, all of the. Things they, they tend to run out, especially the food and uh, daily necessities. So, I think now it's it's close to uh, a catastrophe uh, there. Uh, but uh, as far as I understand, both the fighters and and civilians that are still there they're uh, they're not giving up.
1: No, a last stand, as it's seemingly being called. Yuri, you mentioned something very important, and I know you were trying to get humanitarian aid into them. Do you have any sense of of how supplies are now in the plant, how much food, how much water. I know electricity and communication is is very difficult, but just in light of the Russian blockade, do you have any sense of how long they can survive in there?
7: Uh, well, not not really. As I said, we've stocked uh, some food and water, but our assessment was that it's enough for two, three weeks. Uh, but they are now more than uh, almost eight weeks now uh, in, uh, in, in the blockade. Uh, so I have no idea what was this humanitarian situation there, but I'm sure it's a ca- catastrophe. So we're trying to get as many of the people as possible out of town. We have volunteers helping us basically driving small cars or buses back and forth, bringing people out so we can meet them on the either in, in a safety but on non-controlled territory or on controlled territory, provide them food and shelter and and some daily necessities and, and, and get them some comfort. So that's what we've been focusing on the last, uh, last few weeks.
1: You had 10,500 workers originally at this plant. I know and I mentioned you've accounted for what over 4,000 of them. What about the others?
7: Well, we've set up a hotline for for our employees. Whoever comes out, they're uh, registering on the hotline. And then we're providing them with the advice, depending on where they are. We're providing them on, on the, uh, with the advice of what to do where to get the, the food, the shelter, the, uh, the medical help, and so on. Uh, so far, as you rightly said, we had been contacted only by uh, But four and a half thousand people from from Azovstal, the remaining, they're still not in contact yet. But we're trying to uh, spread the message around as much as possible to to get them uh, to contact us as soon as they're able to communicate. Hopefully, they're still alive. Hopefully, they're okay. And hopefully, they will get out and we will be able to provide them with all the necessary comfort.
1: Yeah, if people are watching, any of your workers are watching, I think that's such an important message. Get in touch and and, and let people know that you're okay and and can be accounted for. Um, Of the people that remain stuck, the the civilians and and potential workers too, in that plant, President Putin has said that they will be treated in a a dignified manner if they surrender. I know it's a, a terrible question to have to answer, but what's your advice if they see this, if somehow they get connection and can see this, do you advise them to surrender?
7: Well, our uh, employees, the civilians, they're not fighting. So they, they cannot surrender because they, they, they are not fighting. Uh, but they, uh, my advice to them is try to get out and, and try to get to either uh, sort of Azov Sea coast where we can take care of them uh, to, to the west or all the way uh, to uh, Zaporizhia where we can uh, meet them and, and, and take care of them. So the, the, it's I, I don't see how civilians can surrender uh, but rather my advice to them is to get out if you can if it's possible.
1: And, and what about the troops? Because this has become as we've discussed what feels to be that the last stand in, in Mariupol. How do all you the Ukrainian are, feel about this the stance of these troops?
7: Well to be honest we feel we all feel very proud for our uh, for our fighters. So I mean, uh, war is war, but they, what they are showing is is a true heroism there, and uh, and of course it's their decision what to do next. We we, we cannot advise them, but we would uh, we would be proud of them anyway. They are heroes anyway, anyway.
1: The other question I think, and and it could become a very important one. I know you've said in the past, this facility and it's it's a big one. We're talking more than four square miles. Will not be used by Russia. The the workers won't work for them. Again if the Russians do end up taking this plant and take control overall in, in Mariupol are you willing to see that facility used for, for Russian purposes? I know at the moment you've been providing support to, to Ukrainian troops
7: Well we already said our shareholder and and, and the company it's uh, our shareholders and, and the company itself has proclaimed that we will not work under the Russian occupation our enterprises, Will not be working under Russian occupation. We will not be controlling this work. We will not be providing this work. Of course, Russians can try to restart the plants. Well, let's see if they can manage that. I, I, I doubt very much. But to be honest, I still believe that Ukraine will be able to take back Mariupol, and we will be restoring those uh, those plants, and they will be working in a Ukrainian, uh, in Ukraine.
1: Yuri, forgive me for asking, but if you're given an ultimatum. When it comes down to to life or death for your workers, would you would you advise them to work if they're told to?
7: Well, I think if it's a life or death situation, they won't really have uh, have much choice, uh, and and, uh, and and they will uh, will have to work. But uh, what I'm saying is that I doubt very much that the Russians will be able to restore uh the, the operations at those mills to to significant capacity just just by by by, by what they're having so I'm, I'm saying it's technically for them it's technically and uh market-wise it's going to be very difficult mm. that's why i believe they will be able to operate those facilities our workers well whoever stays there if it saves their life yes they will work but uh, my advice to them get out, get to Ukraine-controlled territory, get in touch with us as soon yes. as possible.
1: Yeah, let people know where you are and that you're safe. Um, let's talk about the rebuild. I mentioned how important your operations are for steel exports and internally for the country and a lot of work's going to be needed to, to rebuild. Talk about the role that you see for Metinvest in that.
7: Well, first is, is the city of Mariupol. There is a lot of uh, uh, damage to to the uh, to the civil civil uh, civil infrastructure. So definitely, Medinvest will participate uh, with helping people to restore their houses to restore the infrastructure there in the city and help the city to restore its, its, its operation. Second, uh, the steel mills, uh, since we stopped them in an orderly manner to avoid any technological uh, disaster, I believe we can still rebuild them. Uh, and the rebuild will be in both ways. On one hand, we will try to restore the existing technology. But in parallel, we will be building the new technology, which we envisaged uh, anyway and, and announced a few few months ago that we were planning to do the decarbonize the new green steel uh, production in Mariupol. That is still still the plan. And we're, we still believe we can do that. And we still believe we will do it uh, in Mariupol in Ukraine.
1: Yes, we like the attitude. Um, Yuri, I know you have children abroad that, that were studying when this war began, so you're separated from them. And you're just one family of many who's now separated, families in surrounding countries, the men, folks staying behind to fight or to carry on work as best they can. What's your message to, to your children and to those families that are separated?
7: Well, the the message is simple. We're here to win. The victory will come for Ukraine and then the families will be reunited. So the simple message, uh, just hang on. We're doing it. We will succeed.
1: Yeah, we'll see you soon. Yuri, stay safe, please. Thank you for your time and we'll chat again soon. The CEO of MetinBest there. Thank you, Yuri. We're back after this. Any moment now, we expect U.S. President Joe Biden to announce more security assistance to Ukraine. And we've just learned, actually, Ukraine's prime minister is there at the White House, too, ahead of this announcement. We will bring you President Biden's remarks the moment we happen. For now, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. More clashes earlier Thursday between Palestinians and Israeli security forces around the entrance to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Videos show Palestinians inside the building launching fireworks towards police and police firing stun grenades. Friction between Israeli nationalists and Palestinians has led to clashes recently around the mosque compound. French President Emmanuel Macron and his election rival Marine Le Pen squared off in a televised debate Wednesday night ahead of Sunday's runoff election. Macron attacked Le Pen for her ties to Russian banks, and Vladimir Putin while Le Pen said Macron did not care about working class France, especially healthcare workers. CNN's senior international correspondent Jim Bitterman has more from Paris. The only head-to-head Jim, I believe, welcome before the public vote. And perhaps no surprise as far as Emmanuel Macron was concerned, the gloves were well and truly off. And Marine Le Pen's ties to Russia a highlight or a low light, depending on how you choose to look at it.
8: Exactly. It was the closest thing there was in the debate, two hours and 45 minutes long, uh, to a gotcha moment. And uh, it came as uh, Emmanuel Macron accused Marine Le Pen of being beholden to the Russians because of a $10 million loan her party took from a Russian bank some years ago. Here's the way the exchange went.
5: You depend on Russian power. You depend on Mr. Putin. A few months after saying that, Madame Le Pen, you took out a loan from a Russian bank in 2015,
8: First Czech Russian
5: bank. When you talk about Russia, you're not talking to other world leaders. You are talking to your banker. That is the problem, Madame Le Pen. We see it. When there are brave and difficult stands to take, Neither you nor your representatives are there.
9: He knows very well that I am a completely free and independent woman.
4: I defend France and the French
9: because I'm a patriot, and I've shown that all my life.
4: Uh, there
8: were some fiery moments, Julia, no question about it, but in the end, uh, at least if you believe the, uh, the opinion polls, uh, the snap polls taken right after uh, the debate aired last night, uh, they may not have changed the battle lines very much. The opinion polls indicated that uh, the viewers who watched the entire debate believed that uh, that Emmanuel Macron was more convincing than uh, than uh, than his rival, and uh, by a a somewhat great margin. It was 59 to 39 uh, from Macron over Marine Le Pen. So, it, it, you know, it may not have changed things. Uh, we'll see what the voters get to the polls on Sunday, Julia. It's
1: a far wider margin than the poll suggests, at least, uh, coming out of that debate. She did capture my attention, though, on a few things where she talked yeah. about, and forgive the translation, um, France needing to be stitched back together and how she would be the leader to address the high cost of living. And surging energy prices. And and it's a sore point, not just for France, but for many other nations too. Um, Jim, do you think Emmanuel Macron takes it in the end in the vote this weekend?
8: Well, that's the way it looks, at least from the, the opinion polls. By the way, on that issue of stitching the country back together, uh, she did come out on top on that snap poll mm. in terms of who's the best to, uh, re, you know, uh, renew ties amongst the France, amongst the French, basically a very divided country right now. And uh, the pollsters found indication that she's probably going to be better at it than uh, Mr. Macron. But yeah. that was one of the few areas that she came out on top. Joy? Yeah,
1: the candidate that voters um, need to go to if they're unable to make ends meet. I think that was um, that was her message, and it certainly caught my attention. Mm. Jim, we shall see. Great to have you with us. Yeah. Thank you. Jim Bitterman in Paris there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now coming up, earnings fit for a celebratory tweet or perhaps a Tesla victory tango. Elon Musk might just break out the moves again after blockbuster results. We'll see next. Mm-hmm. Once again, a reminder that any moment now, we expect U.S. President Joe Biden to announce more security assistance to Ukraine. He's just met Ukraine's prime minister at the White House ahead of this announcement. We understand that Denis Shmaihal has just left and was there for around 45 minutes. We will bring you President Biden's remarks the moment they begin. For now, let's take a look at what's going on in the market price action. And it was a Netflix nightmare on Wednesday. Well, today, a Tesla triumph. Tesla shares rooming ahead in early trade after the electric car maker reported record quarterly profits of more than $3 billion for the first quarter. China COVID lockdowns not enough to slow the company down either. Tesla's results helping drive. A bit of bullish action on Wall Street, too. Take a look at that for the majors. All averages are higher after the turbulence that came from Wednesday's streaming surprise from Netflix. The shares falling again today amid news that billionaire investor Bill Ackman has sold his entire $1.1 billion stake after Netflix gave a warning on subscription growth. That translates into a $400 million loss. Axman angst and Musk merriment. Anna Stewart joins me now. Ooh, that was a challenge. Get my teeth back in, Anna. <laughs> yeah. um, Tesla reporting first quarter net earnings that were seven times greater, I believe, than a year ago. Some of that, of course, price hikes in the face of supply chain kinks. But given what they're battling more broadly, this is an impressive performance, an electrifying, let's call it that, result.
9: Nice, Julie. Electrifying. Yeah, this was an incredible beat. Um, And you know what, Tezza does keep surprising, I think, with some of these reports, because this is despite some big challenges, looking at factory shutdowns in China as a result of lockdowns, looking at inflation, pushing up the cost of raw materials. And yet such a big beat. Demand is strong. Perhaps not surprising given rising fuel costs across the world, frankly, but also a chart which we have not been able to get for you, I believe, but um, looking at Tesla orders post-Super Bowl, because this was a wonderful chart in the earnings report that just shows how smug Tesla and Elon Musk are, because despite spending absolutely nothing on ad space, uh, they saw huge demand uh, rise off the back of other car makers' ads during the Super Bowl. Uh, And in terms of the outlook, some highlights to mention – Elon Musk thinks they can produce 60% more cars this year compared to last. And a big update on robo-taxis. Listen to this, very ambitious. Expecting to mass-produce robo-taxis by 2024. That is just a year and a half away. And that goes to show, I think, some of the struggle with Wall Street and analysts estimating where this company will go. Because do you believe that incredible ambition to mass-produce robo-taxis by 2024? What price would you put on that? They keep beating. Maybe they'll make it. Julia? Julia?
1: Yeah, I mean, as he said on the call as well, we remain production constrained, not demand constrained. Will that still be the case in light of the challenges that, that China faces with the, um, the gig factory there as well? And of course, um, pricing pressures, because I know some of their long term supply contracts are rolling off. So that's going to be key to watch too. Um, what it does unlock, though, Anna, is a multi billion dollar paycheck, I believe, for Elon Musk. <laughs> not quite enough to buy t- Twitter, but approaching it. Um, what's the latest on that?
9: Yeah, it unlocks the latest tranche or the last tranche of the uh, incredible deal that they reached in 2018 in terms of bonuses of $23 billion. Of course, we actually be able to sell any of those shares for a few years. Where we are with Twitter is it's all gone a bit quiet. Now, re- media reports do suggest that Elon Musk is looking to raise some debt. Um, it's expected that private equity would be involved in any case as well. They will have to mull over not just having a maverick like Elon Musk uh, behind the steering wheel of Twitter, but also, of course, the sort of future finances and the potential for Twitter, which isn't looking nearly as rosy, I have to say, as Tesla. No news from Twitter on this bid. Now, given that poison pill measure they introduced last week, I'd say it's not looking good. Also looking at the share price, currently around $46 a share, far less than what Elon Musk was bidding for. Remember, $52.40.
1: Yes. Wow. And Stewart, we shall watch this space. I think the <laughs> phrase for that is, show me the money. Thank you for that. Okay, before we go, many happy returns to Queen Elizabeth as she celebrates her 96th birthday and she's getting her own Barbie doll. Well, from Mattel. Mattel says it's a tribute to the Queen's historic 70 years on the throne. Wow, piercing blue eyes. That is a beautiful doll. Now, the Royal Family and the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson also honouring her on Twitter, calling her an inspiration to people all around the world.
3: Millions of people cherish a particular moment of your reign and for me it has to be the opening ceremony of the London Olympics in 2012 when your majesty arrived at least figuratively by jumping from a helicopter escorted by James Bond and then the trumpet sounded and your majesty made your entrance and the entire stadium rose as one and burst into applause.
1: And just released this new photo of the Queen and her beloved ponies taken last month. Definitely prefer the ponies to the Barbie doll. That's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next as we await President Biden, of course, from the White House. Stay with CNN.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.